said, Lord, thank you for the blessing of this morning, the blessing of Christian fellowship. Lord, given us the opportunity to grow in our understanding, our knowledge, our wisdom, Lord, our practice. Lord, that we would be able to put these into practice, these truths. Lord, they are dear to us. And we desire to follow you in, Lord, all of those acceptable ways. Tonight or this afternoon as we look at Psalm 2, Lord, help us to come to grip, come to grips with understanding, Lord, what nations are before you, what's expected, what we should be praying for, what we should be advocating for. And let your word be the foundation of all of that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read from Psalm 2. And let, why don't we stand as I read Psalm 2? How about that? Just to break it up. Listen to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, you may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, we have looked at those ideals that are supreme in when it comes to uh, what we ought to advocate, what we ought to support, what we ought to promote, and what we are coming to grips with, because it's foreign in our day and time, that, well, Christianity is not just a religion of heaven, Christianity is a religion for the here and now. It, it's, it's a religion for today, and it's also a moral guide and compass for the nations. And we have to come to grips with that. That's not arrogance. That's not somehow we creating our own perch and standing on it and looking down on everything else. This, this is the word of the Lord speaking. These are his thoughts and we ought to align ourselves with these thoughts. And that, that, in that, we come to grips to understand that the nations do belong to the Lord. Psalm 2 clearly speaks of this. So much so in verses 4, 5, and 6, God is angry with those that don't, well, support that. Notice what he says. Those who want to put him off. Those that want to ignore him, right? Those who want to somehow hold to some neutral ground. He says he sits in the heavens, he laughs. He, the Lord scoffs at them. Now, what kind of laughing is this? It's not a, a comedy relief. He says in verse five, he speaks to them in his anger. It's a, it's a, a laughter of judgment, scoffing of you fool. How dare you? Who do you think you are? You know, I mean, we live in a day and time where man is supreme and it's, it's, it's blasphemous to speak in such a way. But yet we don't live in a vacuum. This is God's world. He created it and he created it for himself. And these, what we're watching going on around us and all over the world and what we've seen throughout history is what happens when the nations do not comply with his authority and with his will, especially those 
who have come in contact with it. <laughs> and that's really what we are discussing as we look at these obligations of Christian nations or those nations that have had the gospel saturated. Now, whether or not we can argue, I think, till the cows come home about, is America a Christian nation? It depends on how you look at it. If we look at it in terms of its laws and the origination of those laws, we would all probably think, well, yeah, it does look that way. Why? Because laws are a reflection of the character and nature of something, something outside the people, not just the people, but something outside the people, binding authority. But now if we look at it now and we would say, well, if we look at our laws, right? We would have to say, well, there's so many ungodly, unchristian laws. And so we are certainly not where we once were as a nation, and that is true. But we have to admit, and I don't think we can give up on it rightly, America is saturated with Christian churches. Weak or strong, they're saturated with Christian churches. The problem is the version and the, the problem is, is brothers and sisters that most Christians don't view this life worth advocating for. That's the problem. And they will excuse their labors in the defense of the, uh, of superior ideals, which are Christian in principle with, well, we're just waiting to go to heaven. Or, well, like I saw this past week uh, with the war that has broken out over in Israel, the end is near. And I'm, I'm not necessarily mocking that idea, but I'm saying now we've, we're moving into this apocalyptic hysteria, aren't we? Well, then, well what could we do? What can, what can we possibly do? The end is near. And I hope, I hope what we are doing here and what we are looking at and the way we're looking at the scriptures and the way we're seeing our Bibles, number one, we're not adding to it. We're letting it speak for itself. But what we see is there's, there's a lot of error out there, and there's a lot of emotion driven comments out there that we as Christians need to sort through. And, and, and it's hard. It's hard to talk to people um, that have these views. I mean, they're so passionate about it, and we have to be so tender with them because when you begin to approach their theology, it's almost as if you're denying Christ altogether. And you have to be very wise about it. I mean, I've had people literally tell me that I wasn't a Christian because I did not believe in a seven-year tribulation. Or, well, three and a half years of bad and three and a half years of good, you know, rapture thing. Because I didn't hold to this rapture that I was practically an atheist. I, I, that's bondage. And it's that Christians have become enslaved to very poor theology. So when we look at this psalm and we see it in light of God as creator and sovereign over the nations and he has installed his son as the head of all magistrates, we're talking about these particular ideals that we ought to advocate for. And our third installment of that is Righteous laws, righteous laws. And now this is where we're going to draw sort of a line in the sand because this is where I, I think I, even though in principle I would agree with many of my theonomic brothers, but in, in, in practice I don't agree with my theonomic brothers. And I, I want to be very, very patient and, and kind toward them because I know, what they, I know their heart is to see God glorified. 
And I, I understand that. But what, when we talk about the establishment of righteous laws, there's going to be a, that, brand of, uh, that brand of theology is going to say, unless we derive that law directly from this verse or this chapter, they're not righteous laws. And I think that's a failure. Because we are not called upon, in fact, the confession of faith is very clear about this. Those judicial laws of Israel, the confession says, has, do you know the word? Expired. Expired. When did those judicial laws expire? When that nation passed away. Those laws, what, when a nation, when nations create laws, they create laws for themselves, right? When that nation has passed away, those laws are no longer standing. Doesn't that, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? And that's exactly the way the Westminster Assembly saw these Old Testament case laws. That those case laws that we have given in the Old Testament particularly Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, passed away with that nation. Now, does that mean we can't derive our laws from the Bible? No. It, we ought to derive our laws from God's moral law. But it's how we derive it, the law. It's how we come to that law. And that's why there's been all of this debate for two decades now over is the law of Moses valid for today? Now I can get into more of that later. But the point that I want to make for you and with you this afternoon is it is the obligation of Christians to advocate for Christian laws or biblical laws, so to speak, or what we call righteous laws. All of those would be equal. Listen to what um, Burks says. He says, the enactment of laws in another part is another part, main part of the duty of a ruler. He says, and here also the exclusion of religious truth must have a, must have a fatal defect. That is, if we don't, if the rulers are atheists, it's certainly going to affect their law making. But if they are exposed to Christianity and if they have the, the privilege of understanding Christianity, then it's going to be a great positive to their creation of laws. It says the will of any body of men has in itself no binding authority over uh, uh, the conscience. And that is true. But listen. The essence, let, let me back up. When we obey the civil magistrate, we don't obey the civil magistrate because they're God. They're not. We obey the civil magistrate because of the laws that they've created allows us to obey God. That's why we are not to obey any law that would have us break God's law. And that's an important note here. They're not, that is, they don't, the pastor does not, our session, our elders, does not personally have the authority to bind your conscience to obedience. We can command obedience only as what is commanded relates to the moral will of God. And there's a big difference. Now, what happens when men usurp that role and begin becoming the sole authority and binding of the conscience? Listen to what he says. The essence of tyranny consists in the will of others being made supreme and absolute without any appeal to reason or higher sanction than force alone. Let me read it again. Listen to it. 
The essence of tyranny consists in the will of others being made supreme and absolute. They become God. Without any appeal to reason or any higher sanction than force alone. That is, if you don't do what I tell you to do, we will throw you in jail. We will, our capital punishment. We will punish you. We will send the IRS to your house. They will audit you. We will take everything. You'll take your possessions. That is, that is when men usurp, that is when men become, instead of subordinate magistrates to the head magistrate, which is Jesus, when men usurp that and make themselves the head, they begin binding the conscience of other people and men because they say so. And they enforce that binding of conscience with, well, with force. They enact that binding of conscience with the use of force. That's tyranny, he says. Now, with that definition, let me ask you something. Do we have a tyrannical government? I just wondered. God himself claims obedience to his laws, not because he is almighty. That is, he has the, the power to make and to sanction it, right? But that's not why. He says, but because he's holy and just and good. Now let that sink in. The perfection God, uh, um, or he says, righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne, that's what the scriptures say. Listen to these verses. I've got several of them here. Isaiah 10 and verse 1. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. Now, based on what we just talked about is as tyranny, when 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 the prophet speaks to this woe to those who make these oppressive laws, who's the appeal to? To the sovereign. Woe to you who make oppressive laws because you've, you've usurped God's role. God is the only one who can bind the consciences of men. God, that, meaning this, beloved, when God tells us to do something, it's binding. And we are bound to it. When we're bound to, you know, now these are generals, right? Well, love your neighbor as yourself. That's general. Because then we have to ask the question, or it certainly begs the question is, well, how do I love my neighbor? And how do I love my neighbor in this circumstance? How do I love my neighbor in this circumstance? Or how do I love my neighbor in another circumstance? And that's why God's law is circumstantial. It's to be applied in various circumstances so that we bring the glory of God into every facet of our lives. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament case laws, when you saw your neighbor's ox out roaming wild, you had an obligation to what? Corral the ox and hold on to him until the neighbor could retrieve him. That is one aspect of how you love your neighbor. Okay? That's, I mean, that, that's a tangible way in how we love our neighbors. And we don't even have to be friends with them. And I'm sure we've done this before with our neighbor's dogs. I've done it a dozen times. Uh, the neighbor up the street, I don't know them, but I know that that dog belongs to them. Because I've seen them walking the roads. And I've seen the dog in my yard, and I'm thinking, he's going to get run over. And there have been many times I've thought about, Lord, now I've got to take, I've got to get, I've got to run this dog back up to my neighbor, which requires what? Time. Effort. But that's a way we what? Love our neighbors. And uh, I mean, uh, many times they don't even let you put your hands on, they just run off. I mean, it's you know, not going to do it. But, but this is what I'm talking about here. So, woe to those that make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees. 
An unjust law will always be oppressive to the righteous. Always be oppressive to the righteous. The very fact that it's an unjust law is by nature unrighteous, ungodly. And we're willing to submit to the righteous laws of men because they rightly reflect God's moral standards. Um, I mean, the state has the prerogative to create laws. And, and these laws, brothers and sisters, are going to look different from place to place. Laws in the Caribbean are going to look different than laws in, well, where it's 10 foot of snow. Circumstantial. Okay? Um, You've got to take all kinds of things into consideration. And that's why, that's why the, the, God gave wise laws to Israel for their time and for their place. And those were good laws, and they were, they were wholesome laws, and, and they were to be obeyed, and they were the wisdom of the nations, if you will, because as they, as, as they would be an example to all the nations. But now that they have expired, those case laws have gone away with them. Here's another verse, Isaiah 5 and verse 8. Woe to you who add, who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Now, it might seem like an obscure, an obscure verse, but who typically makes um, zoning laws? Magistrates do. And when these zoning laws, when the magistrates usurp private, Property rules, property laws, what does it become? Oppressive. We're going to annex your property to this property. And we're going to take it from you. I mean, property rights are a big deal. Do you, I mean, you know, I see what I read was, as I was reading some of the, um, um, uh, oh, the book on communism, and, I, I, you know, one thing that stuck out with me as I was reading down through there, I mean, the one thing that hit me that what Karl Marx hated property rights. He hated them. I mean, that was, I mean, it was just on every page he was wanted to do away with property rights that he believed. Now, again, opposite and antithetical to God's thoughts where God promotes property rights. The property rights are promoted in the seventh command or in the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. What does that imply? Ownership. Taking what belongs to another. And that's one thing that communism cannot stand is private ownership. And that's why you will hear men like myself, you've heard me and you'll hear other Christian men say, communism is absolutely 100% antithetical to property right or to Christianity. God supports property rights. God, it's God's will that if we desire to have property and want property and, to, and can secure property, that we do so. And it's your property. And that's one reason there's always been a, I mean, churches all the way back from the Civil War, pre-Civil War, have, have, have just always wanted to maintain property rights. And of course, now we have what? The taxation of what? Well, private property. There are no, in America, we are not, we technically do not own property. That's ungodly. And you say, well, yes, I, I paid for my house. I paid it off. I've got the deed and title in the, in the safe. Well, stop paying the property taxes and see if you keep it. Because you will be removed from that property and they will sell it. And you will get nothing. 
So in essence, even what we're dealing with is tyranny, brothers and sisters. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13, woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, and making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. (laughs) I don't know how we could be clearer, right? That was a problem in Israel. Jeremiah's writing against the southern kingdom, Judah. This is what happens when sinful people, particularly become uh, or magistrates, become very sinful and selfish and greedy. They begin what? Building their own house and taking advantage of others to do it. And that's why it's been stated, and I think it's, it's a true statement, that the, the greatest, um, one of the best jobs to have, one of the most lucrative jobs to have is American politics. They seem to get rich pretty quick, okay? I think, you know, there's a lot of going on about, um, you know, uh, Diane Feinstein's wealth, what she actually earned over the whole career of her, her political career is only a th- is less. Uh, is less. She, she, she died with 300 and something percent more than what she actually earned. And so the question is, how? How is that possible? Because you and I know as we invest our money, no one's making that kind of money. Not even close to making that kind of money. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 12 Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. I mean, that verse right there speaks to the warmongering. The warmongering. The military, the military industrial complex. Why? Because wars, wars are profitable. Wars are profitable. Wars are great distractions. When the people aren't happy, create a war create the ideal of patriotism give people a give people the impression that they're doing something patriotic for their country and it works psychologically it works that's why you'll start seeing if you notice if you notice we have a, a deficit in the military by and large southern men have always been the backbone of the military But guess what? Not anymore. And so now what you're starting to see, you're starting to see all of these advertisements, patriotic. See? And why? They are, this is the psychological game of heritage, uh, protecting something. Why? Because by nature, that's what we are. Men, we're protectors. We want to protect our, we want to protect our freedoms. And, and we still have the guise of all of these freedoms that we don't have. But it's the guise of the freedoms. Why? Because we've been duped as Christians not to worry about this world. So we've been asleep at the wheel while the others are just, just don't, you know, have, don't really care as long as I can have laws that help me be, you know, my homosexual rights or, you know, my lesbian rights or uh, so that I can marry my dog or so that I can, you know, work in, you know, I don't have to work to get paid uh, or I can just get a check. I can get $2,800 a month and really not have to do anything as long as I vote for it. all of those things. People are what we would call lazy it's the lack of responsibility. It's the whole culture of entertainment and pleasure, and we'll just feed that. Proverbs 28 and verse 2, when a country is rebellious, it has many rulers, but a ruler with discernment and knowledge maintains order. I guess in the idea here in Proverbs 28 too is that God removes rulers as he sees fit. We have a system set up and it's been a, it is, it has, since the, in, since the instituting of the constitution, there's always been a question of, well, every four years we elect a president. Is that, is that too soon? Because other nations would have a leader for much longer periods of time. And one of the checks and the balances that the founding fathers thought about was that, well, 
he won't be there long enough to really accomplish that much bad if he's evil. The problem is, well, you know, and that's a great thought, right? The problem is, nor a good one to do much good. So there's that. Isaiah chapter one, verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, who's he referring to? Who's Isaiah writing to? The Northern Kingdom. Sodom and Gomorrah's gone. Sodom and Gomorrah has been destroyed for decades, for centuries. So who is Sodom and Gomorrah? The northern kingdom. What Isaiah the prophet is saying in the mind of God is that you've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's exactly the way I will begin to address you. So, beloved, when, men, when magistrates, Christian magistrates have an obligation to know the will of God in such a way that they can make righteous and just laws. It's righteous and just laws that cause the people to thrive and to flourish, to thrive and to flourish. Why? Because we all, we all value protection. We all value justice. We value peace. We value being able to go to work, make a decent living, and come home and provide for our families. We, we value that, and it's always been the case. That's why you've always seen throughout history the, the peasants uprising. Why? Because finally they get enough. They can't have it, and they're starving to death. If they don't do something, it's just, it's just more death. And that's when you see the Reformation come in and basically create in these applications of the Word of God into all of these civil areas through the Reformation, really divorcing this religion from the Catholic Church to a now a true religion, if you will, of the people, by the people, for the glory of God, you created a whole middle class. That's where the middle class flowed out of the Reformation, And it's telling that the powers that be want to eliminate the middle class. So that you simply come, we're going to revert back to, we're going to go back hundreds of years in history and have an elite class and a peasant class. Who are the peasant class? That's going to be all of us. We will barely be able to get by. We'll have to struggle to just make ends meet. That's the new world order. That's what they're pushing for. That's what they're advocating for. That's why they want to do away with all of the modern conveniences of life and tell you to live with it for the sake of climate control. Climate control or climate change is nothing than another psychological warfare lie to get us to give up these creature comforts that we've been blessed with, the ingenuity of engineers and inventors to give us a greater comfort of living so that we can, look, if I can come home and rest better and sleep harder, I'm going to work more, not less. If I'm going to... If I can come home and enjoy my family and we can have a cookout and we can enjoy a birthday party and we can join the church and enjoy one another and bring food to the table and we can enjoy those things, guess what? I'm going to be more creative in my work because I'm loving life and I'm happy. Everything that's being instituted is nothing more than a life killer. It destroys lives. It will destroy families. It will destroy nations. And they're working on it now. And my, my answer to this is Christianity. The scriptures. God's word. God's moral law. We have to be more vocal about it. We have to begin to, you know... We have to be, we have to understand how to be persuasive. Because I can tell you, brothers, quoting chapter and verse isn't an argument. I'm not saying that it's never 
it's never a good thing to do. But we need to learn how to talk to people we care about. We need to learn how to be persuasive. That's what rhetoric was when, you know, back in, you know, long time ago, they taught rhetoric. And what was that? That was persuasion. How to speak, how to write in persuasive ways, how to communicate. We don't do that anymore in school. Logic was how was the argument itself. We don't do that either. I don't even know if they do it in the seminaries anymore. And that's why maybe most preaching is stale and dull. Because preaching is what? To be persuasive. It's to move God's people to action. That's the preaching of the gospel. It's to move you to act upon your faith. Good, persuasive, biblical preaching is to move God's people in the direction of God's will where you leave here and you go, man, I am fired up. It's like a coach or anybody else. It's like, I have got to put my hands to this plow. I have got to labor more. I've got to pray more. I've got, I need to talk to this person, this person, and this person. I need to develop my arguments and I need to, I need to lay it out there and I need to keep doing it and be persistent at it. That's what preaching does. Preaching is not just a regurgitation of Greek words and definitions. That's not preaching. That might be a lecture, but that's not preaching. And lecturing isn't preaching. Lectures convey information. Preaching is persuasion. And that's what we have to learn to do even in the sense of moving people to think, well, why not Christianity? Why not? There are really two aspects to these laws that we're talking about here. Number one, they glorify God. That is, they, they originate from him. They're good. But then there's a second aspect of this, and that is the happiness of of man. Those laws that what? Help men flourish. That's the whole point. Families flourish. Families growing. Families being able to thrive. You know what a great joy it is for us older people to go to work is to be able to hand an inheritance down to our children. And what does the Bible say? And to our children children's children and we can barely get by as it is to leave an inheritance to the next godly generation so that they may what be able to thrive and grow and advance it even further we want it is listen even unregenerate people want to see their posterity thrive in good things how much more Christian families to put their posterity on their shoulders. I want my children to be better than me. I come from a broken home. I wasn't raised in church. I wasn't raised with the Bible open and my parents never prayed with me. I'm sure this may be true of some of you. And yet my children have grown up with what? A father and a mother that prayed with them, read the Bible over them, blessed them, you know, lovingly disciplined them, instructed them, took them to church. It did everything humanly possible to see Christ formed in them so that they not only were good people, but that they were godly people. We weren't just trying to raise morally good children, though that was part of it. But that, like I talked about this morning, that wasn't the place to stop. That was just a place to, again, point them to Jesus. So that they will do so with their children. I think it was Dr. Bonson that talked about this. And he said he doesn't know why he didn't understand it. But what he said is like this. He's like what I've explained. He said, you have a family, you, you know, these, you have parents that come together. They weren't come out of broken homes. They weren't 
uh, heavily influenced in religion and they, they get saved, they, they come to know Christ, they're on fire for the Lord and they grow, they raise their children in the uh, admonition of the Lord and they teach them and give them all of these blessings and benefits and of course then they take for granted what they were raised with and then they have their children and so they're looser than they were, than their original parents were and then the next generation don't even know God at all. Because things we take for granted. Because that's human nature. We get so accustomed to things. But what do we do in preaching? We're to be persuaded to not forget. That's one of the greatest admonitions in all the Bible. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Remember. 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 Why is it there? Because of what I'm talking about. And it's like the heritage we have in this nation from the founding fathers. It is good. And we have forgotten their sacrifice and the things that they paid for in their own lives to give us what we have. And what do we see now? Burning, and again, I, I, I can take the flag or leave it, but I, I do understand symbolism. And I'm for it. The flag in and of itself is nothing but a piece of material. But it used to symbolize something greater than man and the blessings of God. And we've got to remember these things. Because what we've done is we've taken it for granted. And now it's gone. It's gone. I was just talking with one of our oldest members in the back and I was asked, well, how do we get it back? I said, that's a great question. I don't know if we can without great, great sacrifice. Sacrifice that I don't know if any of us really want to pay. Because that's the talk that's starting to be, that percolate on the internet is something's got to happen. And that's my fear. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not going to be like the movies. It's always dirtier, uglier, and more hurtful than the movies. Let's end, and again, I could, all I've focused on is the necessity of magistrates living in a Christian land to advocate for Christian laws. That's the goal. We should expect nothing less. And when I say Christian laws, do I mean we have to open up our Bibles and go chapter 61, verse 3? No, no. But laws in their essence do not violate any scripture. Laws in their nature does not violate any of the moral commandments of God. If we obey them, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Let me give you, look, turn to 1 Peter 2. I'm going to I'm going to make my point with this passage. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. All right, let's stop. Let's look at those two verses. To understand the implication of those two verses, we need to understand the context that Peter wrote in. He's writing to the, the, those Christian Hebrews that had been dispersed out of Jerusalem. Caesar has run the Jews out of Jerusalem. He has pur wanted to purge the Roman Empire, if you will, of the Hebrews. And these Christians were part of it. They got sucked up into that and they were dispersed. Peter's writing to the dysphoria. If you look, look at verse, look at chapter one, verse one. 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So he's writing to Christians that have been scattered throughout these lands. But chapter 2, verse 13, what does Peter tell them to do? Submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to their laws. Why? As long as those laws that they created do not violate God's moral law, obey them. Obey them. They're not, it's not wrong to to submit to that authority. It's a good thing. He even goes on, as to the governor sent by him, who is the him? God, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That is, they didn't go around, they didn't move into these places and going, I obey nobody but God. If you're going to make me do something, you got to cite chapter and verse. They didn't do that. They didn't do what some modern-day Christians do. As long as these laws that are created does not violate God's moral law, they are binding on us. Okay? And it shows us the nature of the civil magistrates to be able to create laws that are good laws. Why? Well, notice what he says. For the punishment of those who do evil. That's good. Why? Because it is part of the job of the, of the civil magistrates. What? To dissuade the doing of evil. To promote righteousness. And he goes, go there and well, submit yourselves to their authority. So brothers and sisters, there should be no problem seeing and recognizing that there have been laws throughout the, the world, throughout history that are good. Remember what, I, remember what I taught you about the second table of the law? Remember what Thomas Manton, I quoted, said, that the second table of the law shines brighter than the first table of the law in the heart of man? And typically, human laws reflect the second table of the law more perfectly than the first table of the law. That's Romans 2, verse 12. That's why Paul could argue, even those without the law know well keep the law they keep it because of what has been written on their hearts you can go to I mean you go to any most of these societies most of these most of even ancient societies had strong laws about the family I give you I give you one as I'm preparing to, to preach through the book of Corinthians. Look, turn to Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5. I'm gonna, this will be our last verse. Here's what I'm showing you. I'm showing you how the law of man shines. The second table of the law shines upon the heart of man. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Did you catch that part? Not mentioned among the who? That this is heinous activity even among the pagans. 
even among the society of pagans, Paul is, Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater here. He says, listen, even the pagans see this as wrong, and yet you are tolerating it. Where did they get it? They're not using scripture. It's part of the moral law written on their heart. They know that this is not good. That there has to be rules that govern family relationships. And you know what? Listen, what are we doing away with as we speak marriage laws that typically kept certain people from other certain people. But now we're already talking about polygamy, polyamory, many husbands, many wives. We're talking about bestiality. Hey, you can marry your dog if you want to. You see, we are even doing things that even pagans would not even think of. That's how far, that's the curse of Almighty God. We are going even further than pagans have gone. Now, brothers and sisters, this is evil. How did we get here? Because we've abandoned our Christian heritage. We've abandoned the ideal of what Christian morality is as a people, as a society, as a, a, a governing body of laws that brings righteousness and justice and peace and favor to the community. Why did all these pagans want to come and live in America? Why did all these idolaters want to come and live in America? Because this was obviously the land of freedom and blessing. Now it's just the land of welfare. It's a big difference. Let's pray. Father, we we certainly humbled were humbled, Lord, by the state of our condition in the nation. We know the we know what's right. We know what we need to do. We know what we need to advocate. But Lord, the the task just seems so large. Just help us, Lord, where we are, our sphere of influence, our con, you know, the contacts, the context that we live in. Lord, give us a courage and a boldness that is glorifying to you. Lord, help us to form those arguments and, Lord, those persuasive, Lord, comments that will help others come to understand why we need godly laws. And Lord, not sink further into the depths of depravity that we are as a nation. Lord, somehow hold on to us. Pour your spirit out, Lord, in revival for sure. Lord, we know that that will bring the ultimate change. But Lord, awaken the church, your bride. Lord, we are certainly, by and large, generally, Lord, in a stupor right now. And can't see our way out. But Lord, help us. Come to our aid. Come to our assistance, O Lord. Glorify yourself, Lord, and bring the kind of change, O Lord, to the land that you would have, uh, Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.